Hey everyone, I'm Dr. Kelly Starrett. And I'm Juliette Starrett. And you're listening to the Ready State Podcast. You got it! You better stop it! We're excited to welcome Kristen Holmes to the podcast today. As Vice President of Performance Science and Principal Scientist at WHOOP, Kristen blends her academic and implied backgrounds in athletics, coaching, performance technology, psychology, and exercise physiology to drive research, education, partnership, and product development initiatives to strengthen WHOOP as a leader in human performance. Kristen's research is focused on understanding the effect of sleep, circadian recovery, and load behaviors on our physical, mental, and emotional resilience. Kristen was a three-time All-American, two-time Big Ten Athlete of the Year at the University of Iowa, competing in both field hockey and basketball and a 2021 University of Iowa Hall of Fame inductee. She was a seven-year member of the U.S. National Field Hockey Team and one of the most successful coaches in Ivy League history, having won 12 league titles in 13 seasons and a national championship at Princeton University. And I'll just kick this off by saying that we have been really looking forward to having Kristen on and honestly a representative from the wearable space on the Ready State podcast because you and I are fans of wearables. We've been testing all of them out over the years. And, you know, we love to test and track data. But I think more importantly, it's super interesting because these companies are collecting a massive amount of really interesting data on, you know, some of our most important health behaviors. Yeah. And really, one of the things that I appreciate is that Kristen comes from a performance background herself. So imagine viewing all of this amazing technology through the lens of what would have been important to me as an athlete. And then what would have been important to me as a coach? How could wearables, especially at a team level, have helped me get the most out of my athletes and help my athletes remain healthy and happy and sort of more resilient? And I think the other thing that is extra cool is that in this time when we're all learning that there's not enough research on women athletes because most of the research is done on men, you know, that's another way that these companies are able to deploy some of this data they're getting is that they're getting a ton of data on women and they're able to figure out a lot of interesting information that I think can help women's performance in particular overall. Yeah, if you jump into Whoop, this is not a podcast just about women, but it's great that we have a chief scientist who happens to be a badass woman also looking at how do I serve 50% of the population, which is typically very underrepresented, underreported. There's a lot more to this podcast, but that's just some of the highlights. And I hope you guys enjoy our conversation with Kristen Holmes. Kristen, welcome to the Ready State podcast. And I'm just going to kick it right off that you and I were lucky enough to spend some time together in this fall in DC, helping to advocate for women's performance and more research on all things women's performance and health. And I just want to say that you were awesome and you did a great job and it was so fun to hear you speak and really inspiring. So that was great to do that with you. So welcome to the podcast and thanks for being awesome. (laughs) (laughs) I appreciate that so much. It was such an honor to meet you there. And I had the opportunity to meet Kelly a while back at a a human performance summit. And gosh, I was in California, I think, and must have been three, three years ago, maybe a million years ago. It feels like now I think there's a pre pandemic. Yeah, Yeah, the four times. It's just everyone. So we know full transparency, we have a thousand points of contact and overlap. So just so everyone knows that we are very familiar with our, our current guests. 
Okay, so I do want to delve a little bit into your background. And first, I would love to hear about if you could share with our audience a little bit about your athletic background, which is really cool and very extensive, including you being a Hall of Famer. So I'd love to hear about that. And and then maybe at the end, if you could just sort of let us know if your experience as an athlete informed what you are now doing. Yeah, I was a, a two-sport athlete in the in the Big Ten. So I know your daughter is a Currently at Michigan, so go Big Ten. But I played uh, field hockey and basketball at the University of Iowa. And then I went on to play for the U.S. team for seven years in the sport of field hockey. And then coached. I was a Division I head coach at Princeton University for 13 years and coached at my alma mater for a few years as well. So athletics has been core to my experience and has informed everything that I've, I've done in my career outside of athletics it's been a huge part of how I think about performance and performance education and has definitely been the inspiration behind all the years of academic grinding (laughs) that I've done to understand kind of the connection between the physiology and the psychology and and how that plays out in high stakes, high stress environments. I want to double click on your sort of just personal experience for a second because it is personal to me. I was an athlete, injured athlete, really put me on the course of trying to understand work backwards. Real quick shout out to UNC, Chapel Hill, and their amazing new head coach in field hockey. But I just wanted to say that you are an athlete and a user, and then you're a high-end user. Then you are on the other side. By like high-end user, you mean coach? Yeah. Okay. And then, uh, no, a national team. Mm -hmm. And then you're on the other side And you can sort of have this experience of, let's just say that you and I are, and the three of us are no longer in our 20s, but the way we did things in the 90s isn't necessarily what we're asking of this student body now, this athletic body. And then you go further on the other side of really being able to look backwards and make a set of decisions about what's important and the real use cases of trying to manage high school athletes, college athletes, national team athletes. How has that sort of experience shaped a little bit of your approach to working with the best athletes in the world and their organizations? Yeah. I mean, very simply, I recognized when I was coaching that what I was doing to my athletes in the two hours of training had absolutely no relationship to how they showed up tomorrow. It didn't predict recovery and capacity and readiness in any way. So I started expanding my view of, okay, it's not how I'm training them. The load that I'm putting on them is not dictating how they show up tomorrow. I was able to create a model where that was very clear to me. I was I was taking an external load, internal load, subjective load, and it was nothing that I was doing in training. You know, these are elite level athletes, so they're highly trained relative to the general population. And when you're in a maintenance phase of training, there's not much you can do to move the needle physiologically, right, in a two-hour period. So it was very clear to me that it was all the other aspects of their life in the other 22 hours that they're away from me that predicted how they were going to show up tomorrow. So to not have that in my model in an intentional way, I was missing a huge piece of the performance puzzle. And, you know, frankly, I was not being, I think, the best coach I could be to them by not understanding the impact of those other 22 hours. So this is sleep, it's hydration, it's nutrition, it's fueling, it's how we're managing relationships, how we're thinking about these core psychological needs around purpose and efficacy and control. 
And, you know, if those aren't in the model, we're not going to be able to develop the whole athlete. And that's what college athletics is, is about. It's education through athletics. And I was really committed to creating a model that wasn't just about the X's and O's, but really helped my athlete understand their body, understand their mind, how they interact so they could show up as their best selves as often as possible across all the things that they care about in their life. So I have a feeling Kelly can relate to this intensely right now because he has just been working as a volunteer coach um, with the Cal Women's Water Polo Program as a volunteer human performance coach, which has been really fun. And, you know, he's working with them on all of the things that you are talking about. And as is the, the direct coaching staff, and I think it's a really interesting trend and positive trend for all athletes, college athletes in particular, that that people are realizing that, yes, of course, there's a lot of very tactical and important things you can do during the, you know, formal training sessions. But man, do all those other things on the outside, those other 22 hours of the day are equally, if in many cases, not more important in the kind of athlete you get who walks through the door. Yeah. And that's the biggest, you know, having been inside, you know, I feel like every high performance organization at this point I mean, that is the biggest miss is that they don't have an infrastructure that really takes into account these other variables in an intentional, thoughtful way. And I think as a result, we missed the mark in terms of developing the whole person. Was your experience as a coach and starting to see sort of that, I don't know if disconnect's the right word between sort of that training period Let's and call all it those opportunity. Other, opportunity, <laughs> the opportunity between the sort of training period and all those other hours. Is that what drove you to get all the degrees? And then I would like you to talk about, I, we obviously mentioned some of those in our intro of you introducing you to this podcast, but just talk a little bit about what you're doing. I know you're in the middle continuing your education presently. So I just love to hear about what are you working on and were you driven by that coaching experience to go say, okay, I actually need to go get some formal education on this other stuff. I did my master's when I was coaching. So lazy. What were you even doing? So lazy. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Well, I think that was part of the realization that, you know, is I can know everything about these X's and O's, right? And, you know, I was in a program that was, I had to raise 70% of my programmatic funds to just run my program. You know, Princeton is not UNC. It's not Stanford. It's not Michigan. There's a whole different follow acts, the Ivy League. And there was a lot of advantages to kind of raising and having control of your, your funds. But I didn't have a performance psychologist. I didn't have all these people are around my team kind of enhancing kind of what I brought to the table as a, as a coach in terms of the tactics and, and technical aspects of the sport, which I was, you know, wanted to be the best in the, you know, one of the best in the world at. And so I was working on that aspect, of course, but I realized that I really had to understand the psychology of, of my athletes. So I, I got a master's in sports performance with emphasis in exercise physiology. So that kind of got me up to speed where I was like, okay, I, you know, had trained obviously a ton myself and was already doing like programming for my athletes. And then, so that I think really complemented what I knew on the technical and tactical side as a coach. And then I really started getting into the performance monitoring. I was, I think the first coach in the NC2A to use heart rate variability in an applied sense to monitor the recovery of my athletes. Whoa, whoa, hold up. Just, just repeat that again. That's so shocking. Not surprising, but holy moly, where is everyone? I mean, the stuff that we were doing, I think today, no one is even doing. I mean, we're using Epoch to manage our substitutions. Will you tell everyone what Epoch is? It's excess post-oxygen consumption. So it's basically the amount of oxygen you're consuming after a bout of exercise. So when you 
understand Epoch, you can see basically how quality is diminishing during recovery, how quality has diminished during recovery in that when folks aren't able to recover, they're not able to take in oxygen as efficiently. So we're actually measuring that. So we would see Epoch in real time and recognize when athletes were getting close to their threshold, we'd pull them out, let them rest. So basically, we were able to maintain quality throughout the, the course of the game. So we would never lose a game to a lesser or equal opponent in the back end of a match because we were tired. Just didn't happen, right? Because we were managing our substitutions in this way. I love it. Yeah. So, you know, we were doing some really, this is 16 years ago. I mean, doing really sophisticated things around load management and, and just real-time understanding of how our athletes were responding and adapting to the demands of the game and, and able to kind of stay ahead of it in a way that I, I don't really think anyone is doing that even today. So anyway, I got really into all of this. I had first beat, I had mini maxes, I had, you know, the external load catapults. So I had all of this technology, I had lots of subjective measures we were taking in, and we really built just beautiful models to understand how our athletes were responding and adapting. But again, this was all for the most part in training. And it was still the other hours of the day that I was trying to figure out. So I started, I raised about a quarter of a million dollars, started my own company and hired some computational biologists, statistics machine learning at Princeton. I created a little team. We got the best grade Fitbits. They had an open API. So I was pulling in all their heart rate data. And we literally started developing algorithms around training effect. And so understanding training effect. Oh, had first beat data too. So training effect, how much protein and carbohydrates and fat our athletes were burning during a session. We had algorithms around pulling in Yahoo API, weather, data, ambient temperature. So we could basically predict how much water our, need, our athletes needed to take in in order to be prepared for a four o'clock match or a 7 p.m. match based on their biometrics and you know, all of the humidity data and temperature data. We had an algorithm around sleep. So we were basically transforming at the time Fitbit's shitty sleep algorithm and making it better and pulling it into my own app, which I had a company called Hacknocraft in New York build for me. So I was basically kind of solving like these 22 hours of the day without, and we had a mental health component. It was really like this beautiful, uh, I think, empowerment tool for our athletes to really start to understand how the factors that were really going to influence their ability to kind of show up for training and games and for just all the things that they cared about. And anyway, I was at the back end of, of that technology. We were through beta and that's when I met Whoop. And so that's what kind of led me. They had hardware. I didn't. So they were trying to solve a lot of the same things that, that I was solving and, you know, had a really robust team in place. And, and that's kind of what got me to Whoop. And then I think to answer your question about my PhD work, I uh, started, I was kind of always brought there really to do research and education and just wanted to be as credible as possible. And I think when we're in this space, we often don't know what we don't know. And and going through a PhD was really an exercise to just confirm all the really that I don't know shit. And that, and that you know, I, I just wanted to basically make sure that I was as up to speed as I possibly could be. And my research is focused on circadian and, and things and resilience and talk more about that. But don't you feel like the more and more education you get, it is just an education and learning how much you don't know? <laughs> I feel like that's just, yeah. I mean, there's nothing truer than that. But I want to double click on something you're both saying is when we take the most sophisticated structure in the universe, the human brain, 
We put it in a physiology, which is equally as remarkable and robust and bomber. And then we're asking it to solve this really complex motor problem of playing against people who are equally as badass. And you start to become aware of all the things that you can control and can't control. It's a little bit of a miracle when people go out and win anything ever. Like it's a miracle. And some of those things are so unquantifiable. Team, do I feel safe? Does my coach, how, how do I interact? And what is so interesting about this is, and I know we're going to end up there, but how did those things make you a more effective leader? Because one of the things I know is that when we come back to first principles always, I'm like, well, let's just start with first principles. And yet driving behavior change is so hard. And especially in, I don't know, 19-year-old superstar women. <laughs> and I think that's where the data actually really helped me at Princeton. You know, and I think that's a, a bit of a unique cohort, but they were always why, 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 why. I had to have a reason for everything and had to be really good, <laughs> a really good reason. <laughs> because they were just going to blindly just, I think kids today, they're not going to run through the brick wall. I would have run through the brick wall if my coach told me to do that. But the kids today just don't do that. Like, that's not how they're wired. And I think it's a good thing. You know, they want to know the why, the reason why they're doing something. And and I think data gave me just this really, this ability to have like a very objective conversation about what was happening. It took, it kind of depersonalized it, but made it more humane, if that makes sense. It was kind of like, you know, I think sometimes when a coach, for example, is saying like, oh, you need to sleep more, you know, it's like, well, why? And I think now we're starting to realize that, okay, sleep really does matter. And that's a big competitive advantage. But I think back when I was coaching at, at Princeton, I mean, I had a president of the university that was walking around with a t-shirt said that sleep is for the week. <laughs> <laughs> Local coffee shop made it. It was kind of cute, but it's sending a message, right? So I was fighting a lot of cultural issues at, at a place like Princeton around sleep specifically. But, but when we started seeing the data that, wow, sleep, there was actually this really strong relationship between how we sleep and how we show up tomorrow, then I think that started to really hit home. So I think data actually helped me be a better coach and certainly having children. <laughs> there's nothing like bringing perspective to life when you have kids. So I think data and, and actually kids <laughs> help me be a better leader and a better coach. Oh, you think you're a good yeah. coach? Just coach your kids yeah, on yeah. eating good luck. fruit for breakfast. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Okay. So I want to get into all things wearable and tracking, if you will. And I want to tee this off and ask you, what can we actually track that is meaningful these days? And what are some myths around tracking that you see or wearables? Because I see a lot of us, including, you know, all of us in this room and many people we know that are wouldn't even describe themselves as an athlete still wearing a wearable and enjoying the technology what kind of data can we really get that's meaningful, actionable? And then what are the, some of the myths you're seeing around tracking where maybe the research isn't there yet or, you know, it's coming along? Sort of like, what's the state of the state of wearables at the moment? I think that's a great question. I think from a hardware perspective, for the most part, they're in a pretty good place in terms of spitting out a relatively accurate baseline around sleep and how you're adapting to load. And when you mean load, I'm sorry to interrupt. You don't just mean like weights. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Load external stress is maybe a better way of saying it. So how you're adapting to external stress. And that stress can be in the form of 
cardiovascular exercise. It could be in the form of strength training. It can be form of relationship stress, financial stress. Like any stress you're kind of incurring is going to manifest physiologically, and we can measure that stress relatively accurately. So, you know, especially once you have a baseline, I think what's interesting is is seeing the change in that baseline. And I think the good wearables will tell you what is the smallest worthwhile change so you can understand whether it's meaningful or not, right? And then actually, what are the actions you need to take to kind of get yourself back on track? And I think that to me is the biggest opportunity with wearables and why I love Whoop is that there's no reason to really guess for the most part in terms of understanding the overall state of your health. Like I think heart rate variability is an incredible proxy for your mental and physical health resilience. You know, and we've been able to, I think the literature is there and it has been for decades, really. Heart rate variability is an excellent marker to understand the overall state of your health. So I think, you know, wearables that have heart rate variability and have shown by third party that they are accurately measuring what they're saying they're measuring, that data, I think, can be trusted. For everyone, just define heart rate variability. I bet we have a whole bunch of people who are like, I've yeah. heard of HRV. What is that? They may even track it and not know what it is. <laughs> yeah, I, it's funny. I meet cardiologists who don't really know what heart rate variability is. So yeah, so it's a function of the heart, but it originates in the autonomic nervous system. Your autonomic nervous system has two branches, your parasympathetic and your sympathetic. Parasympathetic is that rest and digest. The sympathetic is the, the fight or flight. And they're both competing to send signals to your heart. When your heart is robust and you're recovered, your heart will be responsive to the demands of the autonomic nervous system. So when it says, hey, we need to fight, your heart rate can get jacked up and get ready for the fight. If it says, hey, we need to relax, your heart rate can decrease and, and relax. And it's automatically responsive to the demands of your environment. When we are under-recovered and depleted, your heart is simply going to be less responsive to those demands. And we are less capable of adapting functionally to our environment. And that's what decreases our survivability on this, on this planet is when we're not able to adapt effectively to our environment. So heart rate variability is just a really great, again, proxy for just our ability to adapt to life stress. So talk to us a little bit about individual heart rate variability, because I have heard read that some of it is genetic, um, although it is it is changeable with our behaviors. But like as an example, we have Mags who works with us who we're convinced is going to live to be 125 years old. And it doesn't really matter how hard she trains or whatever she does. Her heart rate variability is always like 90, which is high. And Kelly and I, on the other hand, seem to have a much lower normal heart rate variability. And we see significant downward trends when we are sleep deprived or, you know, if we do a super long bike ride or whatever, it's definitely more variable. What's, what I could tell you is I could never be an elite athlete. I what not have the, the ability to adapt. Yeah. Is there a genetic component? And how changeable, improvable is one's heart rate variability? Yeah, heart rate variability is definitely modifiable. And there is a very strong, like you, whatever your kind of baseline heart rate variability is, is very much based on genetics for sure. Will age your heart size. There's lots of things that can influence your heart rate variability today. Childhood trauma, 
seems to have a, a big impact on kind of your heart variability. What's tough is that we don't know what our heart variability <laughs> was when we were born, right? So we don't know how far <laughs> off the map we actually are. But I think one thing to consider is that how you've lived up until today. So let's say today I get on, you know, the Whoop platform and I and it, you know, calibrates over the course of a week and now all of a sudden I have a heart rate variability number. It's hard to know what that really means because I don't actually have a true baseline, right? It's just but I think what we do know is that every kind of behavior over the course of my lifetime, you know, whether I smoke, whether I drink, whether I've taken drugs, how I've slept is going to contribute to how I've trained, how I've managed my training relative to recovery. And all of those things are kind of going to add up to give me, you know, my baseline today. And there's nothing we can really do about all of the past behavior other than taking control of our behaviors today. So that's what I kind of tell folks is that you can increase your heart rate variability over time by adopting specific behaviors that we know that are known to mediate heart rate variability. All of the circadian behaviors are going to influence heart rate variability to a degree. You know, how you sleep, how you recover, how you train, your hydration, your nutrition, mobility, you know, all of these things are going to impact your heart's responsiveness to the autonomic nervous system. I want to tell a story about when I became first HRV aware. <laughs> We've told the story at least one other time on the podcast, but you will appreciate it, especially as a mom. Okay. <laughs> Through the lens of recognizing that there is, we need to understand inputs and outputs. It's really difficult to understand all makes sense. And how can I have another piece of data that allows me to say, not in a lot of coaches are worried that technology is going to tell us we can't work hard. But, you know, I know some coaches who are a little worried about that, that like, you know, suddenly we're not gonna be able to get as much work done. But what we find is that when you engage with a series of behaviors that you can measure, you actually can work harder, which is sort of this hidden capacity that people so I've become Omega Wave aware. And one of my friends, early Omega Wave. Was this like 2010, maybe? Even earlier, maybe. Yeah, I've I've used Omega Wave. And I'm putting the sticker on my head and I'm putting it on my hand. And wait, 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 wait. I have to editorialize. He has to wake up and get up and be up for 15 minutes. And then he has to go back to bed and then start putting all these stickers all over his body. Just Go to ahead. get this baseline. And at the time, I'm training for Molokai. I'm going to paddle the Molokai challenge. So I'm like, <laughs> this is going to be really important for a middle-aged dad to be more elite than, I don't know, the other middle-aged dads. And I would get weird readings or be wrong, and I would disappear on my wife while she was like managing our two infants at the time. And she'd be like, you're... What are you doing? And I'm like, I'm, I, you just ruined my data. And now I have to start again. I'm and literally like trying to get two kids ready for school and like bring breakfasts and lunches. And I'm doing really important shoes, here. And, you know, doing all the things. So, and Kelly's like in the guest room attached to the Omega yeah, wave. And I was like, when I, I, I was like, you're was, about to die. That was important for me because I recognized <laughs> at that moment, wow, how we track data and how simple it is to capture this. And can it work in the background? That was my dream. And a few years later, I saw this thing called Whoop. And the first generation Whoop literally was like putting a Palm Pilot on your on your hand. It was big and clunky and charging was awful. But it captured heart rate variability and resting heart rate in the night. So you got to wake up and you had it was just your, there. It was just there. And yeah. that, I just can't 
show everyone or say what a revolution that was to be able to start to have this information and just know that it was in the background. And I have good quality data and I didn't have to get into a fight with my wife and go into a Zen state to try to capture this (laughs) info. And that was the first time I saw Whoop and the power. And it was also one of the first times I had heard an example that you you were all using where athletes who were drinking even one or two drinks saw decreased cardiac function for a few days after those drinks. They were limiting their drinking because they were finally seeing inputs and outputs and the connections between those things. So uh, just that was how I became whoop aware. I just wanted to point out this sort of heart rate variability (laughs) thing because when we're able to start capturing in the background, life changed. Well, also that wasn't that long ago, really, in swimming to think about how the technologies evolved just in, you know, basically that 10, 12 years time frame is, it's astonishing. Yeah. Yeah. To be able to reduce the friction in elite environments has been amazing. I mean, I used first beat at Princeton. So we were literally taking chest strap, a heart rate measurement before practice, you know, they had to lay down in the locker room and, you know, be quiet and still for five minutes. So we could kind of get this heart rate variability measure. And it was, you know, which is wrought with all sorts of, you know, there's all sorts of problems related to that. But yeah, what Whoop has done to be able to put all of this on the wrist and is just, it has changed the game. And I, and I think to show, you know, Kelly, you point out the, the alcohol and HRV relationship. I mean, there's, I don't know that there's another behavior that, will more like profoundly impact your next day recovery than than alcohol. But for to, to actually see it, for athletes to see it in their app and to see this relationship between the alcohol and heart rate variability, I mean, 89% of people on our platform reduce their alcohol consumption just by seeing this relationship. And I can't even tell you how many athletes over the years that I've worked with have just literally quit drinking during their season and have drastically reduced their alcohol consumption in the off-season. And I don't know that that revelation would have happened without exposure to that relationship. So I think if nothing else like that has been, I think, a wild uh, victory. Right, that's miraculous. Yeah. Yeah, so you touched on some of the things already sort of at a high level, and I'm hoping to like drill a little more into your circadian rhythm mm-hmm. research. So but, interesting. but I think uh, if you could just sort of give us a laundry list of like what are the modifiable behaviors that would positively impact one's or improve one's heart rate variability. Obviously, or let's say, let's say reducing readiness or, because yeah. heart rate, like could we also look at heart rate yeah, and, and other things too, temperature. You know, and I think we we touched a little bit of, I think we know, or at least you touched on, you know, reducing or eliminating alcohol will make a huge difference, I think. But what else? And then part B of that question, since this is where your area of research is right now, is maybe to sort of really elaborate on the circadian rhythm piece. Yeah. I think we often, we talk about sleep a ton, right? And sleep is very, very important. But I think the advice of of just spending more time in bed is not the wrong advice, but I think a lot of people really struggle. They might go to bed with all the best intentions. I'm going to get eight hours of sleep, but they don't get a restorative night's sleep. And the reason why that they're not getting restorative night's sleep is they're not tending to these circadian behaviors, which frankly are happening largely during the day. So we want to try to create as much alignment with the natural light-dark cycle. And this is where modernity just absolutely screws us because we have access to light and we have access to food and we have access to these behaviors that impact our biological clock. 
And what's happening at a mechanistic level is our clocks expect things to happen at certain times. And the biggest cue to our clocks is the light-dark cycle. And when we are engaging in behaviors at a phase of the light-dark cycle, it puts huge amounts of stress on our system. That stress results in inflammation. It results in cardiometabolic disease. It results in messed up hormone profiles. It really has a downstream effect in that it impacts every cell, this misalignment, every cell, tissue, and organ in the body. So getting more sleep is foundational and super important, but your path to that is waking up at the same time every single day, getting as much bright light as you possibly can within 20 minutes, getting as much light as you can throughout the day. Once the sun goes down, limiting your exposure to light, getting in a cool, dark, quiet (laughs) sleeping environment, just those things alone will create a restorative sleep that we know is correlated with higher HRV. So your path to adaptation, functional adaptation and recovery and readiness is quality sleep. And there's a linear relationship between quality of sleep and heart rate variability. But your path to quality sleep is not just spending more time in bed. It's getting up at the same time each day. This is sleep offset, getting as much bright light as you can, light during the day, restricting light after the sun goes down so you can release melatonin. And I don't think we fully appreciate the role of melatonin. (laughs) When I think about like the epidemic, you know, in terms of cardiometabolic disease, I think it it is because people are not releasing melatonin. And melatonin is a, a neurohormone and it basically is only released in the presence of darkness. So we have to, as a society, get control over our light behavior. And if you ask most Americans, they are looking at bright lights in the lead up to bed. So the strength of that melatonin is suppressed. And when we look at the pathways, okay, what happens is this light behavior influences our sleep onset, which probably influences our sleep onset. So we call this night-to-night variability. And this night-to-night variability indirectly is going to impact your melatonin production. Your melatonin production is going to impact your insulin sensitivity. Your insulin sensitivity, of course, or whether you're insulin resistant or insulin sensitive is going to determine whether or not your metabolic, you know, whether you function uh, metabolically in in an optimal way, or it can lead to metabolic dysfunction. So that's just one pathway. But it, I think that we don't necessarily think about how these behaviors impact melatonin and melatonin is, has such a broad impact on every aspect of human functioning. And I, and I just don't think we appreciate that enough. Shout out Jack Cruz and Rick Rubin right here. <laughs> Interestingly, we just had Jared Hanley on the podcast from Nature Quant, and that company is quantifying how much time people are spending in nature. And you, know, you can actually get this free app called Nature Dose that tracks, you know, because assuming you have your phone with you all the time, it's sort of tracking how much time you're spending outside. And I mean, this also, it just connects with exactly what you're saying, which is I think the average American is spending like a total of 120 minutes a week outside. So it goes without saying that the light situation is being disrupted, right? If you're just not going outside and you're only under LED lights all day long, like, of course, you know, this light relationship is being disrupted. So I just, I found that really interesting as you were talking. This is a shout out to our producer, Lisa, who is decidedly a night owl. What do the night owls do? And is it for them more about just having that consistent 
sleep wake time, would that be a recommendation you do to a night owl? Because I know plenty of night owls who I don't expect will ever switch and not be night owls. <laughs> but how can they mitigate their night owlness? Yeah. So we know from a paper that was published, I think in 2022, but it looked at basically the brain circuitry and light timing and mood. And basically what they found is for individuals that are viewing light between the hours of 11 p.m. and 4 a.m., their dopamine system next day does not work as effectively. So reward and motivation, it actually has a pro-depressive effect when you're viewing light between the hours of 11 p.m. and 4 a.m. Every teenager on the planet. I know. And circadian disruption is what was really what we're saying, right? When you're viewing light at a phase of the natural light dark cycle, you're viewing light between the hours of 11 p.m. and 4 a.m., I mean, if you look at all the mental health issues, circadian rhythm disruption or misalignment is present in 100% of the mental health issues. So if we're wondering why in the holy hell we have all these mental health issues, well, that is likely a huge piece of the puzzle. So when it comes to night owls, I think that it's generally, and I'm not, I'm talking about healthy folks, people who don't have circadian phase disorders, right? These are individuals who are healthy. This notion of, of night owls is... I think society has kind of taken it to the extreme. And we know this from research done by Ken Wright, where a bunch of folks were dropped in Colorado. They had no exposure to artificial light. And within, I think it was like 48 hours, like a couple days, they all fell asleep within 30 minutes of each other. And they had morningness and eveningness types, right? So people who were self-proclaimed evening, you know, folks and the morning folks, and literally they all fall asleep within 30 minutes around 10 o'clock. So I think this notion that we have these evening, it's really just a preference. And I hate to be the bearer of bad news here, but there is a lot of magic that happens before midnight. And when we are bypassing our biological preference for sleep, we are missing out on the melatonin release, which is, like I said, it's not just about making me fall asleep. It has, it protects my brain. There's association between melatonin and brain volume, decreasing cancer risk, fertility. Like it spans everything that we care about from a health perspective is related to melatonin. So when we are basically create a lifestyle that doesn't allow for this melatonin release, we will have short-term or long-term health consequences. There's really probably no way to bypass that. Hey, Ready State listeners, if you like what you're hearing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes to help others find our show. This episode of the Ready State podcast is brought to you by our friends at Element. One of the things that we have been trying to observe are some of the advice from our best elite nutrition, sports nutrition, especially in endurance athletics, which is let's separate hydration from nutrition. Unless your heart rate is really, really, really high, you can probably eat something. Bar, yeah, I mean, the goal sandwich. is to, I mean, I think generally speaking, and the, you know, the advice that we give to most people is that the goal is to eat food. Actual food. Actual food right. as, as often as you can. That means, though, we're oftentimes left in the lurch for, well, what do I do with this water? Just drink plain water? When turns out maybe that food doesn't have enough salts in it. So for a long time now, I mean, we drink it every day, but for a long time, we've been running Element in our water bottles and then taking food on our bike rides. And that has worked very, very well. Yeah. And also, if you're someone who, you know, follows a more paleo-like diet or you're really trying to, you know, focus primarily... What is this, 2010 paleo? Well, you know, if you're trying to focus on like fruits and vegetables and lean meats and protein and avoiding a lot of ultra-processed foods, it's possible you're actually not getting enough salt yeah, in your diet. Yeah, we've seen a lot of friends have to be like, oh, I should salt my food again. 
because they aren't, you're right, they're not getting any salt because they're not eating these ultra processed foods. I think the recommendation is that generally people are eating a lot of salt because they're just eating over processed foods and chips and stuff. But if you're not, because you're trying to go fast on the bike, or for me, be a little bit lighter on the bike, be less gross for my wife. Turns out I need to make sure I'm adding salt back, especially, especially for those people who are discovering sort of endurance athletics as they get older like biking or running or hiking, you've got to replace the electrolytes. You've got to get the sweat. And same for all of you who are discovering the joys of sauning oh, as you get older. Oh boy, here we um, go. Yet another place to really focus on. You know, Element and ham sandwich in the sauna is what you're saying. your electrolytes. I love it. Right now, if you order through our link, you can get a free sample pack with all the Element flavors. Go to drinkelement.com slash TRS. Let me ask you this. I have a couple things I want to circle around to is, one is what you just said is amazing that <laughs> if I can, if I'm able to influence my own family, you know, more and more Juliet and I really believe that the household is the functional unit of change for so much. What you're saying here is that looking at these, these wake sleep cycle times, limiting light, what tactically you have little kids or children, we're not saying they're little. But what would I do? One of them drives hell. I know. (laughs) What would you do as a parent? You know all of this because, you know, I always say expert clinician, this isn't me, but expert clinicianship is a sort of a compromise conversation between what the patient thinks is best for herself and what the physician thinks or the provider thinks is best for her. And we're always in this kind of dialogue between those two competing factions. And at some point, people have to say, I'm I'm going to experiment with this. And we recommend that. We're like, don't trust us. Go ahead and check this for yourself and see how this works for you. Your mileage may vary, but probably won't. What should I do as a parent then to limit these lights? Like, give me some tactical things. Because I have some red LED lights in the house, and I make the house really red sometimes. And I get a lot of crap for it. I'm not going to lie. Well, there's a fine balance where you, you know, want to be doing these things and then your kids don't want you to be a total weirdo. <laughs> also true. I know. It's really hard. I mean, I, I think, I guess I, I've had the benefit, I, I suppose, of we'll be in the car. And, you know, as kids play youth sports, you spend a whole lot of time in the car driving these kids around. And invariably, you know, it'd be off hours or on weekend, I get a call. It'd be Jose Bautista or... Charlie Coyle or Jack Eichel. And I'd be having these conversations about all the stuff that we're talking about. So they kind of have heard me talk about it and the importance of it. So I've I've had that benefit in that, you know, they kind of think it's cool that they have access to some of this information. So I will say that I've had an advantage there. But I think for my kids, you know, we just some simple, and these aren't simple and they're not easy, but, you know, no tech in the bedroom after 8 p.m. So we just kind of have a hard stop there. And then I definitely dim all the lights after 7 p.m. in the house. Like it's really low light to try to get that melatonin, you know, starting to ramp up. Um, and we're really careful about our meal timing. That's another circadian lever that I didn't mention that we just launched a really big time-restricted eating study on the Whoop platform. This is an area that I think has a lot of promise because it's relatively low barrier to entry in the sense that you're not restricting calories and you're not really thinking about quality and content, although that's really important, but this is just thinking about timing. And we've seen that regardless of what folks are eating, if they can consolidate their eating window 
between eight to 10 hours, preferably when the sun is up, because there is this really powerful circadian component in terms of food when we're eating it and metabolic efficient, you know, our metabolism and, and cardiovascular health. And so there's really strong research in that area. But just by consolidating your feeding window and backing it up. You're saying like not eating late at night, potentially. Yes. Once the sun goes down, you don't really want to put any more food in your body. Your body, those clocks that I talked about, those biological clocks, they're anticipating fasting after the sun goes down. They don't want it. They're not primed to metabolize. I'm just thinking about every parent picking their child up in the dark from the sports right now. Sorry, like, <laughs> sorry, Caroline. Oh my God. I know. I know. And like going into to Chick-fil-A and Wendy's for that. Hey, I have been there. And I think in healthy individuals who are exercising, it's not as critical, but, and again, we're not trying to be perfect here. It's just on average, we want to try to consolidate our feeding windows. We don't want to be eating across a 16 hour period. Like we have not evolved and adapted to, to that. That has serious repercussions and it puts huge amounts of stress on our body. So we want to make sure that after the sun goes down, we're, we're not putting a lot of stuff in our body. That's definitely a lever that we can pull and that parents can pull to kind of help their kids get into, you know, deeper stages of sleep and, and have a better sleep experience. So yeah, 8 p.m., no tech, and then just dimming the lights. And, you know, it's they've kind of grown up with it. So it's kind of all they know. <laughs> I love they go to people's houses and they're like, wait, we can eat. Wait, wait, what's going on here? Yeah, yeah. I just want to talk about a couple other things here related to tracking. But before I do, I just, I will tell you that after all the years of tracking, what I've noticed mm -hmm. in my own sleep actually impacts my sleep more than alcohol is eating too close to bed. I can have like a drink and I definitely will see an impact. But if I have a big meal pretty close to bed, all my metrics are tinked. Yeah. So, I mean, it's been interesting and it's too bad because I mean, I'll be honest, left to my own devices, I would like to eat cereal every night at nine o'clock. So it's a struggle for <laughs> yeah. me, but- um, Did you grow up in the seventies? Yeah, I did grow oh. up in the seventies. So <laughs> I would like to have cereal every night at nine, but I try not to. But the other thing that I've noticed that I don't do differently after all these years of tracking is I don't not train when my recovery scores are low. And I have a feeling I'm, this is really from like a, you know, let's consider me like a lay person or, or like very recreational athlete at, as a 50-year-old woman at this point. But just a three-time um, world champion recreational athlete. Well, yeah, but athlete. I mean, you know, I'm just training for durability at this point, right? So I'm not I'm not trying to do anything. Less grossness. Like, yeah, but I, I find that just based on my work and life schedule, that it's like I train on, you know, I do kind of like my weightlifting stuff on Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And there are days and times when I've, carved out to be able to train. And I, I pretty much keep those training windows steady, regardless of my recovery scores. But um, let me ask you, do you make different choices? Like you handle, you take a little less volume, I mean, you go a little bit more, really. you, does your intensity change? I mean, I'm sure my actual performance where I'm measuring that, you know, during the workout is probably impacted, right? Like I'm not performing as well. And I'm probably not adapting to that training as well as I could where I recovered. But I mean, I'm still doing it. And I imagine I'm not alone there. You know, it's like, I don't know anyone who's like, yeah, sorry, I'm not going to meet you for the Saturday 9 a.m. bike ride because I got a low recovery score on my whoop last night. Like that's, those are words I've never heard from anyone ever. Now, of course, in a more elite or professional athlete context, that's a different conversation. But what are your thoughts on that? What are you seeing? Should we be listening or, or paying attention to that more as old people, durability athletes? I think acute changes day to day, I would ignore those 100%. I think for recreational athletes, you should be able to train every day. 
in my opinion. Maybe take a day off per week, but I, there's no reason, there's nothing where you can really do to your body in an hour that's gonna have a huge impact. Now, I will say, if you have something in your life where you're getting really short sleep, if you are managing a huge kind of psychological issue or that might be caused to reduce your your volume and intensity potentially. But I would say if there's psychological stress, like exercise is probably going to help you, but that will manifest in your heart rate variability. So it's not just the physiological stuff that impacts your heart rate variability. It's the psychological. In fact, your psychological status can impact heart rate variability probably more than anything that can, is happening physiologically. So I think understanding that's important. And my default is that exercise is, is usually beneficial. And I think if you're an elite athlete, of course, and you see that, wow, okay, we're not adapting as functionally. And we can see that there's been three days in a row where we've got a, a significantly lower heart rate variability and resting heart rate relative to your baseline. We might want to, we're going to step back and evaluate, okay, is it training or is there something happening lifestyle or psychologically that is impacting, that's creating this suppression and lack of adaptation but I really like for athletes, I like to look at, and for, for anyone, I like to look at weekly trends. I like to zoom out and just see, okay, what does our adaptation look like over the course of the week and not really focus on these acute changes? I don't think that that's really what the technology is for. I think some of these acute changes can be super powerful in that, oh, I've got the flu or I've got, oh, a stomach bug and holy cow, like, or COVID. Wow, I see, I started three days before symptom onset we see huge suppressions in heart rate variability and respiratory rate and recovery. And so I think in those instances, these kind of acute moments can be really helpful or seeing the relationship between a big night out in terms of alcohol and then seeing how that manifests my heart rate variability today. But in terms of training, yeah, I don't think that you need to be kind of responding to day-to-day fluctuations. And let me put this through the lens for everyone because I think it's easy to be, let's just say a hardcore data scientist and just say, we're going to make every decision based on this hyperlocal phenomenon. And yet you're also were a national team member and you get to show up today and we're all training today, no matter what your feelings are. <laughs> and also a coach, you're like, hey kids, I know you raged last night, but we're still gotta get some work done today. So let me just say that one of the w- things that I talk about with a lot of the athletes I work with at the universities is I say, hey, everyone's training just as hard as you, but your ability to adapt to this training is the differential because you can handle higher volumes, you can be fresher, you can be... Like you can get more work done over time if we pay attention to all of these other 24, 22 hours of the day. There's so much opportunity for you to actually invest and see the dividends of this sort of, of this training stimulus. But in these team situations, how does this information sort of get used by a coach? How do you work at, I have 30 individuals I have to make different decisions based on this info besides changing specifically individual behaviors, which by itself I think is worth the price of admission. But can you make decisions about your athletes writ large? No question. I think especially when you incorporate catapult data and whoop data, you can see these strain load ratios that could be really powerful in terms of understanding adaptation a little bit more holistically. And catapult if everyone is GPS. Mm-hmm. That's right. So how the athlete is accelerating and changing direction and how much time they go up and down. And, you know, they have a really sophisticated algorithm that I love and I think it's really useful. And I think kind of whoop and, and catapult together can yield some really interesting data that's actually quite predictive. So when you have a high uh, strain load ratio, that means you're not adapting functionally to whatever just happened to you. A low strain load ratio means you're adapting pretty functionally. So we, and we've been able to test this out. 
I think one kind of case study, you know, I've worked, it's been documented and, you know, that I work with this team, but Florida State University soccer, very, very successful program. And they have just been all in on testing and the athletes are citizen scientists and like super into it. And so I've been able to, to really work closely with that team. We use, we develop these strain load kind of ratio thresholds and and have really sophisticated models working with that team. They've won national championships. I mean, when we go to the West Coast, we keep them in their home time zone across all these circadian behaviors. So they opt out of jet lag, essentially. So they've just been insanely, I think, on the forefront of using data in the environment. What we do is we basically figured out exactly what we need to do across the metrics on average in order to yield the best chance for availability. So getting, we aim to have 90% their athletes training and competing in 90% of practices and competitions over the course of the season. And in order to do that, they have to keep their sleep-wake variability at 85%. They need to keep their sleep debt below 45 minutes and they need to keep their sleep performance at 90%. And that's really it. So there's the three things that they focus on. And we just basically take an average. So we don't look at anyone individually, but just say, we say, hey, the team is at 87%. Someone's bringing down the average. You need to, you know. <laughs> oh, I love that. I love throwing everyone. Yeah. That's really great. <laughs> that's that's so, so great. Yeah, it's awesome. And we would basically, I mean, for two years, I would every single Monday, I'd come onto a Zoom and I'd basically go through the data with the team and it was awesome. And, and I'm telling you, these kids are like literally, knock on wood, like bulletproof. <laughs> like it's just so hard to get injured when you are managing the biggest circadian lever, which is the sleep-wake, sleep-onset offset. When you're keeping that sleep debt below 45 minutes is just seems to be like just the magic number across everything. I can go into all that research, but so we just try to, we just focus on a few things. They just try to nail that as much as they can on average across a week and it works. So every whoop coach out there who's using this could have this access to their data. They could see this as a team and sort of average these things. That's possible. That's right. Yeah. Totally de-identified. Amazing. So I don't think you identified it earlier, but the sleep debt, because that was one of the big things you're measuring. What is that? So people know. Yeah, that's basically what Whoop says you need versus what you actually got. So your sleep need, it's a proprietary metric, um, but it basically takes in how much load, how much strain you put on your body, so how much cardiovascular load you put on your body, any naps you might have taken, and your baseline sleep need, how efficient of a sleeper you are. And what we've seen in the research that sleep debt, so every 45 minutes, of sleep debt accrued, we see a 10% decline in next day executive function as measured by NBAC and Stroop. So these are kind of mental control tests. So we did a six-month study. So sleep debt, we kind of validated sleep need and sleep debt with the study in that we showed that there was a relationship between cognitive function and how much sleep debt we have. We also saw, and this one is so fascinating, so anyone who's a leader of anyone should be aware of this, but we saw with every 45 minutes of sleep debt, so this is a study with 120 CEOs, and we were basically pulsing their direct reports after meetings and testing or asking them to rate how psychologically safe they felt in those <laughs> meetings. <laughs> And what we saw is that 
for every 45 minutes of sleep debt that the CEO or the boss had, their team members, their direct reports felt less psychologically safe. Wow. So there's a strong relationship between psychological safety. So your ability to kind of show up and be your most authentic, truest self and the sleep debt of your leader. So you can imagine that as a parent, right? Carrying around sleep debt. So there's things that in the leader would never, doesn't think that they're coming to the table any less than they normally would, right? But what happens in the presence of sleep debt is that there is things that are happening on a subconscious level that you can't perceive. So just how I hold my face and the shape of my eyes and you know how I emote and how much eye contact I make, all of that is going to be impacted when I'm carrying sleep debt. That's one of the most amazing things I've learned about sleep over the last like five or 10 years, probably first reading Matt Walker's book is that you know, we're completely unaware of our own sleep debt. So we think we're slaying and functioning. And it's like, it's pretty amazing that the human brain actually has that that capability. No, no, you're fine. You're fine. Keep going. Yeah, you keep got this. I just telling you, like, you're got, you got this. You're crushing it when, like, you're decidedly not crushing it. So we're already getting close to the end of our time. And this is too bad because I have 75 more questions for you. So we might have to have a part two. But one of the things that you have touched on, but I would love if you could elaborate more on, is that thanks to Whoop and Aura and Garmin and Apple, an unprecedented amount of population level data is being collected about people's health. Like, I mean, I have to think in human history, there's never been this much access to this much really interesting and important data. And so what's being done with that data? Presumably these companies are analyzing it and sharing it. You've mentioned obviously the big reduction in alcohol use by Whoop users. You touched a little bit on COVID, COVID stuff, but what are the big things that we're learning from all this major data collection? And then are companies taking that data and trying to share it, you know, with institutions, government, people who can make like policy level health change? Is that is that sort of a natural progression of the use of that data? I don't know. Talk to us about this big data set that's out there. And what is it saying? Yeah, those are great questions. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, we're definitely using it to try to better understand women's health would be, as we all know, you know, women are, are totally understudied and we don't really know a lot about female physiology, frankly, as it relates to training and to sleep and to all the things that we need to be caring about if we want to be able to coach women effectively. And so I think at, at a population level, we definitely see very distinct changes for women who have a natural cycle. We see their cardiac profile is changes in a, in a very predictable pattern. And when it's not changing in a very predictable pattern, that is a comment most likely on that person's overall health. You know, you want to have, like I said, these these very clear patterns and, and changes and there's a healthy profile and kind of an unhealthy profile. So I think there's a, a real opportunity to understand these cardiac profiles and be able to kind of coach people or make folks aware, hey, there's some things that we can do to kind of get you to a healthier place whether that's to increase your chances of, you know, of having a baby, for example, or having a healthy pregnancy, or just being able to adapt more functionally to just the demands of life to improve metabolic functioning. There's, a, I think, a huge opportunity to take some of these population-level insights and then be able to, to fit them to models where we can then bring these, these insights to women to kind of help them get on a healthier path. So I think that's definitely one use case. I think the other is just being able to elevate conversations around alcohol consumption and, and what that does 
to human health and functioning, how it impacts sleep. You know, it sounds really simple, but I think for a long time, folks have just, I think, normalized alcohol consumption. And you think about this on college campuses, for example, I think that's one of the bigger failings of our educational systems is that our educational system, especially at you know university and college level, is that we enable binge drinking. I don't know that there's really any other like more dangerous behavior than that. And so I think data like this really show the cost of things like alcohol consumption. They show the cost of carrying around sleep debt, right? Because Juliet, to your point, like we can't perceive our own physical, mental, and emotional declines. And sleep debt doesn't just impact me. Our data show that sleep deprivation is going to impact everyone you come in contact with, from the the person at the cash register at CVS to, to how you show up for your children at night. And so I think at a population level, I just think there, there's such a huge opportunity to help inform people on how these behaviors ladder up to human flourishing. And I think most importantly, so we understand how it is we need to apply our effort, right? If we want to try. That's right. I yeah. love that part. Yeah. And I think that one of the things I was thinking about randomly this morning as I was in the shower is just that at some point with all of this new health information that people are being handed, everybody's got to choose and there's probably 50 things we could all be doing, but realistically, you know, most people are maybe going to do like five, maybe 10 sort of like health forward behaviors. And I think those things probably are slightly different for each person. And people do at some point have to make a choice. But I do think these wearables, man, I mean, they've done some pretty significant things for Kelly and I in terms of definitely like basically barely drinking alcohol anymore, making sure we're spending enough time in bed. Cutting caffeine off way earlier. Yeah, they're, they're just some really simple, simple behaviors that don't require that much effort. And there's probably more we could do. Like, I am obsessed with doing the Wordle right before I go to bed. And, you know... You're going to get orange glasses, woman. Yeah, and I'm like, well, I should probably stop doing the Wordle right before I go to bed. You know, so, I mean, there's always areas for improvement, but we've already made some, you know, pretty significant changes in the way we operate and, and also just how much we prioritize our sleep in particular... And if if these wearables out in the world change that alone for humans, it's pretty significant, right? So I think I think it wasn't that long ago where it was still was a badge of honor to be the four hour sleeper. And I really do think that that consciousness is starting to change. There's still a lot of work to do, I will tell you, though. And one quick story is that Kelly was on a podcast that was sort of outside the health and fitness space, um, more for creatives, I would say. And he said that from our book built to move, he's like, hey, you should sleep seven or eight hours. There's really no disagreement about that by like any scientist on earth. And this thing on this guy's platform has gotten over a million views and something like 5,000 comments. And I would say 75% of the comments are not positive. They are, people felt very upset by the suggestion that they should sleep that much. And we're talking about how individual they were. And so what the lesson Kelly and I learned from that is that, you three, know, we... Three and a half million plays. Yeah, so we, And the comments are so hateful, what, you can't even believe it. Yeah, what I'm telling you is that we all... Towards me. Towards to suggest that you should get try to get seven. seven hours of sleep. So I think the lesson here is that all of us, and I'm looping you into all of us, um, who work in this performance and health, fitness, wellness space, we, I think, are... It, change is happening and we're learning and getting better. And man, the more we can step outside 
of that and try to get this out to just our families, just the household. I'm telling you, that's the magic. We've got to step out a little bit, maybe a little bit out of the household into the community more because there's still a lot of work to be done and a lot of real misinformation about sleep in particular. So I have one more question. I know that we're, we're over time. We were at a conference recently and someone was talking about their sort of nutrition and supplement usage. And this person said that they had a bunch of children who are like older teens and young 20s. And I said, well, you know, how do you approach this performance nutrition thing for them? And he was like, oh, no, they're just like, they're just fine. So like there was such a cutoff for this gentleman thinking that he needed to dial, measure, track, take every supplement that every expert says. But literally for his family, there was none. I think is this a question, is is there an age appropriateness for something like a whoop for a teenager who's interested in this? Or is an athlete looking for to perform better? How should we think about that maybe? I definitely think I can just use my son as a really good example. And my daughter, you know, they my son just got on Whoop in August and my daughter's just about to get on Whoop, you know, in the next couple of weeks. So and my daughter's 15 and my son is 16. So they've been exposed to this stuff for a really long time and they've seen me rave about it and and really transform my health in positive, super positive ways over the course of the last six years. And But I think that they also appreciate that there is an element of truth. Whoop is kind of a truth teller. It's going to objectively just tell you how your body's responding and adapting. And and I think that can feel like, I know my son Parker, he said that it feels like a little bit scary. Like I had to like almost like work up the courage to like get to a point where I could see that data. And and of course, I think he, he has a unique perspective and lens in that he understands that with this data is going to come responsibility or or in some ways kind of pressure to make changes and i think he just like just recently became kind of ready for that so i think as parents like we have to understand that data can be really powerful and it can cause stress and harm right if we don't have a a framework on on how to think about it so i mean we try to keep it really light really fun. We look at his strain during hockey practice and and talk about recovery and kind of what that means. And we look at trends. We don't get hung up on the day-to-day stuff. And but you know, he starts to see relationships between the input and and his output. And and I think it really has accelerated his wisdom around the lifestyle stuff that really supports his goals and his performance and and the stuff that kind of detracts from it. I love that he's kind of putting the pieces of the puzzle together for himself. You know, I think that's way more powerful than me, like telling him what to do. So I, I love that the role of of data in that regard. But I think we, I'd be remiss not to acknowledge that it certainly can cause stress in some folks. So having a relationship, a healthy relationship is really important. No, I was looking at ne- negatively. <laughs> I was just thinking how and simultaneously how powerful that is. I was thinking about the resistance of some of our friends to like get a blood panel because they're like, I don't want to know. <laughs> I know I'm doing it, but I don't want to look at the data. And then I was simultaneously think how grateful it has been for me to solve real environmental problems with some of the world champions I work with because they use Whoop. It allows me to get to the conversation and to the what our friend Andy Galpin calls a performance anchor, the limitation, yeah. very, very quickly because I we have these trends. So 
Thank you, Whoop, for making all the performance coaches better. Yeah, and I do think it just requires a little bit of self-awareness. And if it turns out you're one of those people that finds the data to be more anxiety-producing than useful, then you should listen to that. <laughs> it may not be for everybody. And certainly that's going to have to sort of be like a conversation that people have with themselves about the data. I personally find it fun. Yeah, it's like a little experiment every day. Yeah, it's a little daily experiment. And I feel like I've I've learned a lot about my behavior. And honestly, I think in some ways I've learned enough that at this point it's just fun. You know, I'm not sure I'm learning a ton more. I probably could just not track anymore. And I think I already you know know and, and can rely Literally, on Literally, you but say fun. first thing in the morning to me is not good morning, honey. You're, the, you're like, how'd you, how'd you sleep? No, I ask you, do you want to know how I slept? <laughs> that's what I, that's always what I say to Kelly. Do you want to know? You uh, are wealth information. Tell us the links where people can learn more about the, the yeah, your teaching, research, your research, because you do a really wonderful job of putting that in the what world. What you're excited about, all help, those help us link this up if I'm more interested about all this. Oh, I appreciate that. Yeah, I definitely on Instagram, I try to be more active. I just joined a few years ago, but I really try to post any publications that, that come out or any publications from other folks that I find really interesting. But yeah, definitely all about human resilience and human flourishing and the the policies, frameworks, behaviors to support it are really what I post about. And it's just Kristen Holmes, 2126 on Instagram. And then I try to be active on LinkedIn as well. Um, just Kristen Holmes. There's really just two of us. There's the CNN anchor. That's not me. I'm the other Kristen Holmes. So, <laughs> and yeah, so those are the, the two places you can find me. And, you know, ResearchGate, I'm on there as well for the nerds. Well, go find her and follow her and keep tracking this wearable situation. And we'd love to have you back. I feel like we missed like a whole half of what you're working on because this wearables thing is so interesting. So um, we'd love to have you back if you're open to it in the future. Oh, I appreciate that. Yeah, of course, I'd be honored. Thank you for today. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you so much. It's great to chat. Thank you for listening to the Ready State Podcast. If you like what you're hearing, check out all our episodes here or at thereadystate.com. And be sure to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes to help others find our show. Check us out and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Ready State. Until next time, cheers, everyone. You got it. You better stop.